Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Today, I have a jam-packed episode for you that's a little different than my other episodes. And I am pumped because today, I will be having an open conversation with a very special guest someone whose military career can only be admired and whose civilian career has been aimed at fighting for victims of foul play in the military. A year ago this week, a military soldier by the name of Vanessa Guillen was beep bopping along on Fort Hood, living her life, counting down the days until she could say sayonara army. You see, she had signed up for the army against her mom's advice. And here she was sitting in her dorm room wishing she had just taken her mom's advice to heart. Well, what Vanessa didn't know then was that she would soon become the most talked about soldier in the world. On April 22, 2020, Vanessa Guillen went to work in the arms room. She was wearing civilian clothes. Apparently, she was only there to do someone a favor when poof, she vanished. For the next 70 days, her sisters, mother, family and friends would go up against a Goliath, the United States Army. And if Goliath laughed when he saw a small, meek-looking Latino family that hardly spoke English, well, Goliath soon would realize who was boss, as they had to explain their actions, lack of actions, and poor excuse of an investigation as the world watched Fort Hood leadership shout, Uncle, Uncle, Uncle. Join me today as together with my special guest, retired Air Force drag and current president of Protect Our Defenders, Colonel Don Christensen, remember Vanessa Guillen and the legacy her family is hoping to see through fruition with the I Am Vanessa Guillen Bill. Now, let's dig in. Vanessa's case is one of those cases that pulled at my heartstrings when I first saw her family with maybe one or two supporters standing outside of the gates of Fort Hood. This was in late April 2020, and they were there with a B-team reporter, a Spanish-speaking mother asking the public for help with no one there to offer a decent translation. So it was impossible for English-speaking viewers to understand what was going on. I have covered Vanessa's case in episode 31, episode 37, and episode 56. And just as a warning, if you go back and listen to my initial coverage of the case, episode 31, I covered it when it was so new that can you imagine I mispronounced Vanessa's last name throughout that first entire episode, referring to her as Vanessa Guillon. I've considered going back and redoing it, but there is no way for me to recreate the sense of urgency that I felt in that episode, in that moment. I have decided to keep it as is. So I apologize for the cringe worthiness of mispronouncing her last name. Today, I am doing things a little bit different. I will talk about Vanessa since now, a year later, we know so much more about her life. I will brief the facts surrounding her disappearance and her murder just very briefly. And then I will bring in my special guest, Don Christensen, to talk to me from experience about a few things, right? How should Vanessa's disappearance have been handled? We will also chat about the Fort Hood Independent Report as it applies to Vanessa's case. We'll talk about lessons learned. And finally, we'll talk about exactly what is the I am Vanessa Guillen bill and what it is seeking to accomplish. My source for this next bit about Vanessa is taken from a 2020 article in Houston Chronicle. The piece was written by Gabriel Banks, Olivia Tallett and Hannah Dellinger. Vanessa Guillen was born on September 30th, 1999 to Gloria and Rogelio Guillen. Her parents were Mexican immigrants, and Vanessa was the second oldest of the family's six children, four girls and two boys. Raised in Houston, Texas, Vanessa was an athlete from birth. She was quiet, hardworking, and she had an extreme physical strength. She was a soccer player, and her leg strength was ridiculous. 
she made running half marathons seem like a piece of cake. At five foot two inches tall, she was a tiny tower of muscle, bench pressing double her weight. According to Gloria, her mom, she loved playing army since she was 10 years old, but her mom thought it was just a stage. Turns out it wasn't. When she was a senior in high school, Vanessa told her mom she wanted to join the army and her mother straight flipped the lid telling her daughter, no, 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 no way in hell, mija. The army is where people go to deploy and she warned her of all of the dangers. Vanessa heard her mom out, but a few weeks later, she arrived home to announce, I joined the army. Rogelio, her dad, had to jump into action because Gloria was about to start fuming. He reminded her that here in the United States, kids can make their own decisions at 18 years old. And with that, there was nothing Gloria could do except for pray. Vanessa graduated from high school on June 9th, 2018. And two days later, she was on her way to army training and she was pumped. She knew she could do it. She was tough as nails. Initially, it seemed the army was everything she dreamt of. In training after training, she excelled. She trained in small arms and artillery repair, and she even got a few tattoos to remind her of the things that she loved. She got a cross with a flower to remind her of her faith, a rose because she loved them, and a mountain to remind her of her military training in Virginia. All seemed well as she stopped over at an airport in Texas and met up with her family before arriving at her first duty assignment, Fort Hood. Her family says she seemed really happy at this point, it was the end of 2018. But turns out, Fort Hood was not exactly what she expected. She told her family she wasn't happy there. The people weren't good, the food sucked, and the military officers were not nice. I mean, it's not like she expected the army to be Camp Cupcake, but dang, this was not how she dreamt of spending the end of her teenage years. The only good thing about Fort Hood, according to her, was its location to her native Houston, where she often spent her weekends with family, friends, and her boyfriend, Juan. Vanessa didn't let on to anyone that she was unhappy until the fall of 2019, after a short stint training in California. By November 2019, Gloria describes that Vanessa wasn't the same vibrant soul. She seemed changed. By February of 2020, Vanessa confided in her mom that she was being sexually harassed by a sergeant. When her mom pressed her for more information, like, OK, well, did you report it? Vanessa was like, Mom, are you serious? The military doesn't take that seriously. If I report it, they'll just make fun of me. Within two months of confiding this small little tidbit with her mother, Vanessa would vanish while at work, never to be seen again. It was April 22nd, 2020, and Fort Hood was under COVID restrictions, as well as the rest of the world. And rules on uniform wear had been more relaxed since everyone was on a reduced schedule. Vanessa was called in to do something in the arms room. And as reported by the Houston Chronicle, it was more or less she was doing a favor for someone. Vanessa was not on formal duty, so she showed up to the arms room in civilian workout gear. Once at her location, she received a text message from a fellow soldier by the name of Specialist Aaron Robinson. He needed her to come down to his arms room, which was a different room, to either validate some paperwork or work on a machine gun. Vanessa left her arms room, which was occupied by at least one other person, but she only took her cell phone with her. She left behind her wallet, her car keys, her room keys, and her military ID. It seemed as if she would be right back. She walked out of that room, however, and was never seen again. By nighttime, after Vanessa failed to respond to messages from her boyfriend and her sisters, the Guillen family in Houston, Texas, knew something was wrong. Two of Vanessa's sisters and her boyfriend jumped into a car and drove a few hours to Fort Hood. When they arrived a little before 3 a.m. as visitors, they were told they had to wait until morning to enter the installation. In the morning, it was reported that they met with military police and when Vanessa failed to check in that day, Vanessa was officially reported missing by the military. Turns out that Vanessa actually hadn't checked in with her leadership in the late afternoon, early evening, the day prior on April 22nd. But she was wrongly accounted for, which is why she had actually been missing for over 24 hours before the army reported her missing. Now that it has been a year since Vanessa disappeared, though, we all know what happened next. 
the Army botched the investigation, conducted various key interviews over the phone. For example, Aaron Robinson, the last known person to see Vanessa Guillen, he was willy-nilly interviewed, but the notes by the investigator are elementary at best. They never bring him in for legit questioning until weeks later, and they don't appear to go into the arms room to his arms room to check it out. The investigators just appear to take his word for it. They take everyone's word for what it is and don't do any further investigation. It is early on that Vanessa's family activates into a force to be reckoned with. They start hosting rallies at one of the main gates of Fort Hood. They rally news stations holding signs that say, where is Vanessa Guillen? Demanding answers. The army never really saying anything. But the Vanessa Guillen family is not reducing its pressure on the army. Early on, the first few big news reporters to pick up Vanessa's story are the likes of Nancy Grace and then various Spanish networks, including Univision and Telemundo. Then various Latin activists begin to get involved, like Selma Hayek, the actress. She vows to post Vanessa's picture on her social media story every single day until she is found. And then at some point, it's like a snowball until every single channel is talking about Vanessa Guillen. And the army probably begins to think, oh, my God, what will we do? This is a public affairs nightmare. And let's just talk about public affairs for a moment. Fort Hood actually has a podcast called Fort Hood's Great Big Podcast. And a quick review of its feed shows that they failed to inform the public that they were searching for a soldier by the name of Vanessa Guillen. They failed to mention this immediately after she went missing. Instead, on April 30th, about a week after she had been missing, they released an episode about a roller skating chaplain and tiny furniture for squirrels. Most of their May episodes were focused on COVID-19 updates, and it's not until June 18th, almost two months since she had been missing, that they mentioned the search for Vanessa Guillen. It's kind of like, hello, read the room, guys. Read the room. No one cares about roller skating chaplains. They want to know where Vanessa Guillen is. Not only this, though, but when Vanessa's case blows up, well, Fort Hood's dirty laundry starts flying all over the place like a huge explosion. Wait, there's another missing soldier by the name of Gregory Morales missing since 2019? Oh, wait a minute. Fort Hood had how many suspicious suicides in 2018, 2019, and 2020? I'm sure at this point, leadership is like, please make it stop, make it stop. And well, then the truth comes out, but not before civilian authorities get involved, including a volunteer organization by the name of EquiSearch. They start digging in, and that's when the investigation into Vanessa's disappearance gets supercharged. And well, it's June 30th, 2020, 70 days since she had last been seen when Vanessa's remains are found near the Leon River. Turns out, not surprisingly, that the last person who saw Vanessa Guillen alive, Aaron Robinson, is the same person who bludgeoned her to death in the arms room, put her in a tough box, kind of like a plastic container with wheels, took her out near the Leon River, where together with his girlfriend, they mutilated her body, attempted to burn her remains, but when that didn't work, they buried her in three separate locations and poured concrete over the remains. This is a shocking case. Aaron Robinson somehow, though, was able to escape the grasp of Army criminal investigators, where he got his hands on a gun and allegedly committed suicide, just as police and investigators were closing in on him. The only remaining person responsible was Aaron's girlfriend, a military spouse by the name of Cecily Aguilar. She was estranged from her military spouse at the time of Vanessa's murder. Cecily is currently pending charges by civilian authorities for tampering with evidence and conspiracy to tamper with evidence. As reported by KSENT TV, just in late March of 2021, Cecily's civilian defense attorney filed a motion to dismiss all of the charges, claiming that, get this, Authorities failed to read her Miranda rights before questioning her. Now, while I have not read the motion to dismiss, I am praying and hoping that this does not turn out to be another failure in the investigation into Vanessa Guillen's murder. So that is Vanessa's story in a nutshell. If you want more information, please go back to episode 31, 
then episode 37, and then you can follow up with episode 56. Before I bring on my special guests, let's take a minute to hear from today's sponsors. Now, I want to bring on the show a very special guest, a retired Air Force lawyer by the name of Colonel Don Christensen. Don, as he insists that I call him, served in a lot of different capacities in the Air Force, but most notably, he was the Deputy Chief Circuit Defense Counsel, Chief Circuit Trial Counsel, a military judge, and then he served as the head of all senior prosecuting attorneys in the Air Force JAG Corps. After retirement, he joined Protector Defenders as the president. Protector Defenders, or POD as they are known, is the only national organization solely dedicated to ending the epidemic of rape and sexual assault in the military. Without further delay, let me welcome Colonel Don Christensen onto the show. All right, Don. I'm going to call you Don. That's all right. Awesome. Awesome. So why don't you tell me a little bit, tell my listeners a little bit more about your background. I think everyone's going to think it's fascinating what you've done in your career. Sure. Uh, I come from a long history of military members. My dad was career force, grandfather's career force, great-grandfather was army, great-great-grandfather was army, great-great-great-grandfather was army. So going back to at least the 1850s, it's just a long history of military service. So I, I joined the Air Force uh, when I graduated from law school. I actually was in ROTC in law school because I knew it was something I wanted to do. Uh, I knew I was going to be a judge advocate, a military lawyer. Uh, I came in in 1991. Uh, you know, people go to law school for different reasons. I went to law school because I wanted to be a litigator. I, criminal law fascinated me. Trials fascinated me. I loved doing it. Uh, there was, in my mind, nothing more fulfilling than doing a great closing argument. And there's nothing more exciting than hearing a verdict. Uh, it's just incredible. And so I, I have a passion for litigation. And uh, the Jack Corps really aren't that great about developing litigators. It's all about generalists. But I did not have any desire to be an environmental lawyer or somebody's butler, you know, be the executive <laughs> officer. I wanted to be in the courtroom. So I was able uh, to continue to be in litigation jobs. I went from a uh, base job, my first assignment Ellsworth, to the Area Defense Council. Then I went to another base job where I continued to do litigation. Then I went to be Circuit Defense Council, which is a senior defense council where you travel around. Uh, the country, uh, helping on serious defense cases. And then I went to another base job where I got to still do litigation. Then I went to be the chief circuit trial counsel in Europe for three years, which was an incredible job. I, again, traveled Europe, going from base to base, prosecuting cases for three years, deployed in there uh, right before that, which was a great experience. And then uh, SJA at uh, Tyndall, and even when I was in SJA, those SJAs can't be a prosecutor for cases at their base, but I uh, went out and did several cases at other bases because friends of mine that were SJAs said, hey, we got this really big case and we can't get help on it. Can you come do it? And I'd say, yeah. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, that wasn't without controversy. I had the... (laughs) people saying what the hell Christensen think he's doing. And I thought what I was doing was making sure we had won cases. So uh, then I went to be a judge for two years, uh, which again was a great experience. I think made me a better prosecutor when I went back to be the chief prosecutor. Uh, there's something about watching a case as a neutral, as a judge, and just saying how, uh, because when you're in there as an advocate, either a defense counsel or as a prosecutor you view the trial differently but when you're watching it as a judge you see things that people do that like well that's really annoying i know i did something <laughs> like that this is really annoying why are you doing this this comes across really poorly you look bad in front of the court members and then uh, became the chief prosecutor for the air force for four years i was the first and the only chief prosecutor who took that title seriously in the sense that i went out and prosecuted cases not not a lot but uh, every year I would go out and do one or two cases. Uh, I thought it was important uh, to show the prosecutors work for me, that the guy who's in charge actually knows what he's doing. Right. Uh, we've had chief prosecutors who 
didn't know anything about litigation. We've had others that were good, but they still didn't go out and prosecute cases. Uh, other part of that job was I was the head of the appellate shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all the government appeals, uh, we wrote the briefs on. And again, I thought it was important that, uh, uh, you know, I can show people work for me. I can do this too. So I wrote briefs. We have had others write briefs that had that position. But I also did argument before the Court of Appeals and Armed Forces. I, I really believe it's important that the people at the top be able to uh, lead and demonstrate and practice. And so that's, that was my career in a nutshell. That's amazing. That's awesome. And you were active duty for 23 years before you retired? Yes. 23 years. Awesome. So tell us about, so now you joined the Protector Defenders crew. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, Protector Defenders was founded about 10 years ago uh, by Nancy Parrish. Uh, she is good friends with Representative Jackie Spear of California. And Congresswoman Spear had been paying attention to the crisis of sexual assault in the military. And she was talking to Nancy and she said, you know, we need an organization to fight for these men and women who've been sexually assaulted. Uh, Nancy said, well, I'll start it. So she started an organization. Originally, it was just to advocate and tell their stories, get it out there in the media. Uh, But uh, we have expanded that role. We do a lot of uh, uh, advocacy on the Hill to get reforms. And then we also have a pro bono legal network. We provide direct legal services to men and women, whether they're in active duty, reserve, guard, or civilians who've been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed by military members. Oh. Uh, we have a network of attorneys throughout the country, some of the biggest law firms in the, in the nation that, to provide this legal representation. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's an important, an important organization. And then it's, I think it's come more to light more recently because of the cases that have been happening and are getting more media attention, right? Because you know, as well as I do, you've been in since, or you were in since 1991. These cases aren't that different. They're not, they're not new. They're just getting new media attention, if you will. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's ebbed and flowed uh, over the last 30 years, how much attention they get all started with tailhook. That was mm-hmm. a huge, huge media event. But, you know, then the military has, you know, and I know this is their policy because I've heard them say this before, of outweighing the news cycle. That's their policy. And, you know, eventually tailhook went away, you know, and then they just wait to the next scandal. And then that one goes away. But I would say since 2012, 2011, with the uh, release of the Invisible War, and then the Lackland scandal, uh, the case I prosecuted in Italy, the end of my career, the Wilkerson case, mm-hmm. and others have propelled this to now it's getting persistent coverage from the media and, and the military's practice about waiting the news cycle is not working now. It's not working anymore. That's right. All right. So, so Don, my listeners just finished hearing a synopsis of Vanessa Guillen's story. And besides today's episode, I've covered her case on multiple of my other shows or other episodes. I wanted to celebrate Vanessa's life while also reminding everyone about the national coverage, as we were just talking, that Vanessa's case received and all of the conversations it has sparked throughout the last year, whether it's about military murder, sexual harassment, literally how we handle disappearances in the military. But most surprisingly, I feel like of all military murder cases in history, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, this case seems to have really touched so many lives. Now, understanding military cases so well, since you've been in the trenches for so many years, what do you think it is about Vanessa's case that sparked so much interest? Well, uh, I, I credit her family mm-hmm. for this. Uh, if the Guillen family had not pushed, I don't think we'd still know what happened to Vanessa. But, you know, it's a compelling story in the sense that you have a disappearance. Her keys are left out of work. Her IDs left out of work. And then she just disappears from the face of the earth. And yet you have a family that says our relationship with Vanessa was such that we would hear from her multiple times a day. And we haven't heard from her. And so you have a young, bright Hispanic woman who 
the army seems not to care about that she's gone and uh and you have a family that is you know pushing back against this massive institution that is the United States Army Mexican origin have uh, come to this country as immigrants and and fighting uh this Goliath and I think it was just you know the underdog story uh really yeah touched a lot of people that fortunately that made sure this coverage didn't go away right I think for me and I've I've told this story before but for me it was like wait a minute someone can just vanish like during the duty day in their yeah. place of employment you know I thought about that and uh, I was at Andrews at one point and you know the Jones building is huge and I considered I was like can you imagine if I literally just like parked my car went into the Jones building and vanished like what the heck? And that's kind of the way I envisioned it. And her case just like, I don't know, I've always had like a spunk, like a fire for these cases as we talked about. That's why we became lawyers. But for me, this case, I was like, no, I was like, this is not right. They cannot ignore this family. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, there was every sign for the army that this wasn't a soldier who was voluntarily gone. Right. Uh, You know, I've done the cases where uh, an airman has disappeared and they are doing it in such a way to make it look like they've been abducted. But this, there is nothing about this would give anybody a reason, any rational human, a reason to believe that Vanessa had left on her own. Mm-hmm. And if she didn't leave her on her own, then we know that there is uh, some crime has been committed that's resulted in a disappearance, which should propel the army to immediately be looking for. Her. Right. Well, and then I think the shade, when we'll talk about this in a little bit, but the shadiness of they were doing because we were during COVID, they were doing a roll call every evening and they like they they just accounted for her, even though she didn't call or she didn't do any of that. So that that's really kind of frustrating, too, once we learned yeah. about that. So when, when you and I were talking kind of during our pre-brief about today's episode, we kind of talked about what would we have done as JAGs at the legal office if we were working at Fort Hood, for example? I want you to tell me a little bit in an ideal world, how should they have handled Vanessa's disappearance? Well, they should have immediately viewed it as a suspicious disappearance versus putting her in AWOL status, which is a voluntary uh, disappearance. Mm -hmm. When you leave, uh, if you are taking off, you're not usually going to leave your car parked in the front of your work. You're not going to leave your ability to pay by you know, not taking credit cards with you and things like that. And so they should have immediately been looking for her. And you, what you're always going to do in a case like this, who's the last person to see her mm-hmm. that you know of? And you know that she was called over by Robinson to come to his building. Mm-hmm. And that should have been like, okay, what happened here? I mean, have these people ever watched an episode of <laughs> Law and Order? I mean, exactly. Yeah. And then how quickly the JAG is going to get involved is how quickly they're told about it. And, you know, obviously, if the unit is delaying, making it clear that there's somebody missing, the JAG's not going to know. But you would hope that there's one of the first things you're going to do is get CID involved and get the JAG involved. But the Army, to by their own admission, had a policy not to look for missing soldiers, which as, you know, us as Air Force people, that's a unimaginable that mm-hmm. we wouldn't look for a missing airman. I think that's such a big deal, right? And and you make a good point. We we don't actually know from the Fort Hood report, it doesn't say when they involve JAGs or not. So to even get that advice, but CID, I think, I don't know when they got involved, but it was like 48 hours at least when they call, I think they called Robinson or something that they called Robinson and say, hey, like, hey, hey, what happened? And she's like, oh, she left my, she left my, uh, my arms room and never came back. And they, from what I understand, and I know the report doesn't say everything, but they didn't even go to his place, like the arms room to check. Right. Because when I think about it, I'm like, there must have been so much blood from a bludgeoning. Yes. That there's no way that he could have cleaned that all up in no. the end of time. Like I just, for me, it's so just beyond myself that it took 70 days to find, you know, to find her. It's just crazy. It is crazy. And, and that, uh, you know, the Fort Hood investigation, which I thought was actually really well done by the independent investigators, mm-hmm. especially Mr. Swecker, the uh, FBI agent, uh, you know, 
talking about all the investigative errors they made, talking about, uh, you know, the lack of experience with their investigators, uh, just th that all compounded into, uh, uh, you know, just a chain of events that resulted in the family suffering for much longer than that they should have. Mm -hmm. And Robinson uh, walking around for 70 days without uh, having any kind of restraint on, on his movement. Right. Were you shocked when you read the Fort Hood report? And, and, and I guess in two ways, were you shocked that it was so open, like that it was that it was to me, I felt like it was so raw. It was so honest. Or were you shocked because you thought maybe something else? I was shocked how honest it was when uh, Secretary McCarthy announced uh, the report that there was going to be an investigation announced who was going to be on it. I was concerned because most of them had prior army experience. A couple mm -hmm. of them were West Point people and the loyalty to the institution is so strong. Exactly. Uh, so I was worried that it wouldn't be a really good luck, but it was, uh, uh, did not pull any punches. Uh, and so I was very happy, but also surprised that it was so thorough and so uh, critical. Oh, 100 percent. I sat there with a with a highlighter as I was going through it. And I was just kind of like, holy smokes, like I couldn't believe how thorough it's it it it, it was, you know, um, in my episode that I taught that I go through the Fort Hood report. I don't I don't focus too much on the sexual assault and the sexual harassment, the sharp program, but I focus more on the investigation and the missing soldiers mm -hmm. part. And even that part for me was just really well done, I felt. Yeah, it was. And you know, one of the things that I, I think is pretty striking that goes beyond the Fort Hood report is this idea that the Army as an institution didn't look for missing soldiers. Mm -hmm. Newsweek ran an article, I believe it was Newsweek, ran an article a couple years ago about the Army's, the way they respond to deserters. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had talked about a guy that had been found after 18 years and the army hadn't even bothered to look for him. I think he got pulled over by the local police and, and found out that he was a deserter. And, and they uh, talked about the desertion rate in the army and how rarely they prosecuted. So they looked at 2006, 2007 numbers during the height of the Iraq surge mm -hmm. when the army had lowered their standards mm -hmm. to get people in. And yet they only prosecuted 5% of their desertion cases, over 3,000 cases, and they wow. only prosecuted 5% of them. So that was, uh, that was a surprise. That, right. Again, coming from our Air Force background, uh, where I think the Air Force takes desertion much more seriously. Mm -hmm. What are, I guess, from the Fort Hood report, can you talk to my listeners about anything that kind of shocked you, whether it was about uh, Vanessa's disappearance or the SHARP program or anything that just kind of came from the report? Yeah, well, SHARP program, uh, the lack of trust that the soldiers at Fort Hood had, the lack of knowledge. I think it was only something like 60% of soldiers knew that there was a Special Victims Council program, which is pretty, pretty disappointing because mm -hmm. that's an amazing program for survivors. Uh, the uh, lack of uh, emphasis from leadership dealing with SHARP. And then just, and this is something that I think is systemic across all the services, the lack of experience of investigators, uh, mm -hmm. the idea that investigators were, you know, really what, what this was, was just their first assignment before they moved on to doing protective services for senior ranking officers. That seemed to be like, you know, the end game. Uh, again, Mr. Swecker testified before the House Armed Services Committee, you know, it takes five, six, seven years before an investigator truly starts to feel and develop uh, what he needs or she needs to, to really become an investigator. Right. The art side of it, you can be told the science side, but it takes a long time to get the art side of it. And that these investigators weren't even getting two years of experience before they moved on. But I think that's systemic across all the services and all the investigative agencies. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I found that. <laughs> I think that was the most shocking part for me as well, right? I wouldn't say necessarily that they were so brand new, but that they didn't have someone there to kind of hold their hands. 
Yeah. You know, it's kind of like even as a jag, as a I don't know. Sometimes people get offended by the term baby jag, um, but <laughs> sometimes uh, the baby jag, you know, you have your senior jag that you kind of lean on and you're like, hey, I did this brief. And then they come and they redline the whole thing. And you're just kind of like, this sucks. But you learn from them. Yeah. I can't imagine being a brand new CID agent and being like, oh, hey, we have a missing soldier. And then you're just kind of like, OK, well, I have to investigate all these other things that I'm working on and just kind of putting that to the side. So, so I thought that was interesting, too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, as uh, uh, Mr. Swecker did an interview for Vice News uh, that aired, I think, last week or week before. And, you know, and he was talking about how even at the mid-level supervisor, uh, uh, where you, supervisor level where you would expect there would be somebody to do exactly what you're talking about is lead these new agents, that very few of them were qualified. I, he said he estimated there was only one or at most two agents in all the CID at Fort Hood, which is a large unit mm-hmm. that was really qualified to deal with serious crimes. Wow. And Fort Hood is huge. Yeah. Fort Hood, Fort Bragg. Um, and then I know Fort Bliss has been in the news a lot lately. So. Have you had a chance, I, I know you have had, but tell me about it, um, to sit down with folks at POD and legislatures, et cetera, to discuss the lessons learned from Vanessa's case? Yes. So I, I think there's a number of layers of what's going on here. Uh, I always believe that criminal justice starts with investigations. Mm-hmm. You know, lawyers have massive egos and we like to think we're the reason <laughs> cases are won or lost, but it's the investigators and the quality of investigation uh, that is the foundation of a good prosecution. And I think about 90% of uh, uh, cases won or lost by that investigation. So I've had a number of conversations on the Hill about how we need to make sure that uh, the investigators have the experience and the dwell time uh, in those positions and the ability to make a career out of being an investigator. If you want people to, to provide uh, security for four-star generals, that should be a separate career. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you need people to go over to uh, the desert and do counterintelligence, that should be a separate career field. Uh, investigators should be investigators. You know, uh, they, we should be looking at people where the average one's looking at 10, 12 years. Uh, of this experience versus everybody in a training situation and then moving on to something else. Uh, I think that has, you know, definitely struck a chord with a lot of people on the Hill. You know, there's talk about, do we civilianize uh, the investigators in the army? The Navy's gone that route. I don't know if NCIS is any better. I haven't seen any real data on the experience level because I think they still get Take it spun off into counterintelligence and spun yep. off into force protection and uh, protection of high value assets. Uh, so, civilianization or a larger percentage of people being civilian, probably a good idea. I mean, I think it's still a good idea to have uniform wears, but uh, dwell time is what's really critical, uh, and whether it's on the location or in the career field. And, and I think. There's definitely support on the Hill for that. That's amazing. And I think it's the same for JAG sometimes, um, because I've noticed that when you have a case that starts and you have someone, a JAG assigned to it, and then like three months later, they PCS and then they give their case file to someone else. But there's a lot that's just kind of in your head, right? That you're not transferring. So I think I 100% agree with you on the... um, the investigators, because you need to have that investigator there from kind of cradle to grave because they're the ones that understand it the most. And they'll be like, oh, that one time, that one person, let's, let's follow up with yeah. them. Um, yeah. So that's good that the Hill is, is interested in doing that. Yeah, and I, and I agree with exactly what you're saying is, you know, the uh, first <clears throat> for the victim of the crime, what's the sex crime or crime of violence or this family dealing with the death and murder of a loved one, having a new investigator continually taking over a case is difficult on them, you know, telling what happened again and again. And then uh, what's really important about being able to stay on a case is as you uncover something new, 
uh, someone tells you something, you will, you know that, wait a minute, somebody else told me something differently because you actually were part of that. Well, if you just read a file, you may or may not gather that may not hit you immediately that I'm being told something inconsistent here now. The JAG world has this bizarre view that trial counsel are fungible. You've probably heard that term mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, we, we won't move a defense counsel out while they're defending somebody, which is the right thing to do. But for trial counsel, we can move them in and out. And again, for continuity, understanding the case, that's bad. For uh, the message it sends to victims, it's particularly bad. So mm -hmm. it, it's just one of those institutional things that really needs to be changed, whether it's investigators or prosecutors, why it's important that they still be there throughout the case. Right, right. No, that's that's so true. Let me put this out there. Uh, Vanessa's Vanessa Guillen's case would not be, I think, in my personal opinion, what it is today without social media. Yes. The hashtag I am Vanessa Guillen gave so many victims of sexual assault, sexual harassment. It gave them an avenue to share their experience in the military. The I guess the bad part, right? Their bad experience in the military. And this is right up your alley with pod and the purpose of pod, right? Can you tell my listeners a little bit more about the I am Vanessa um, Guillen bill and what it is seeking to accomplish? Yes. Yeah, so the I am Vanessa Guillen bill uh, is a follow on to legislation the Representative Spear had offered in the past, which uh, would for sex assault, uh, rape and sexual harassment cases take that out of the chain of command and have independent military prosecutors make the decision to prosecute the case. As that's transitioned to the I am Vanessa Guillen case, uh, bill, uh, it, it is broader in the sense mm -hmm. that it also uh, criminalizes sexual harassment as a specific offense in the UCMJ. I think one of the more important things it would do is it would create independent trained investigators to investigate sexual harassment. Uh, right now, sexual harassment allegations are mostly uh, investigated either through command-directed investigations or through uh, uh, maybe an IG investigation. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is the command-directed investigators are just somebody that works for the commander. They may have never investigated anything in their life. They're definitely mm -hmm. not trained investigators. And, you know, they relate that experts on sexual harassment. And so the investigations aren't particularly good or helpful. And then another thing that uh, a lot of survivors view as a barrier to, to justice is it would pull back on the Ferris Doctrine. And the Ferris Doctrine is the Supreme Court decision which prohibits military members for suing the military for torts, damages that are, quote, incident to service, which is very broadly defined. So as a result of the Ferris Doctrine, people who have been sexually assaulted, sexually harassed, can't sue the military if there's negligence on the part of the military that caused that. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's an ominous bill, an ominous bill, <laughs> and uh, uh, it, uh, it has a lot of sponsors. Mm -hmm. uh, that has the uh, commitment from Speaker Pelosi to support it. So we'll see what happens. What do you, so um, is it back on the floor right now? It's not back on the floor yet. It was introduced last Congress, uh, but it did not get a vote. It was introduced fairly late. So not okay. surprising. Uh, I would expect it'll be reintroduced fairly soon. Okay. Uh, uh, but there, there's actually a lot of churn right now dealing with uh, reforming the military justice system. Senator Gillibrand is going to reintroduce the Military Justice Improvement Act. And then uh, President Biden has ordered a review of the military justice system as well. So okay. I feel like sometimes there's two extremes, right? There's like the military, the way the military wants to do it. And then from what I've heard, the Military Justice Improvement Act is like all the way over here. If there was a way to meet in the middle, do you think, what do you think that would look like? I guess, what what would the criminal justice, the military justice system look like? It, it, it's an uh, excellent question. You know, what's the ideal? You know, and there's going to be different people have different views. Uh, you know, there's a legitimate 
concern on the part of the military that that they have some sort of voice in the justice system, uh, the inability to handle quickly discipline issues. Although if you look at court martial data, they're really not using court martials for that anymore. Mm-hmm. But there's a legitimate concern for that. And there's just as also a legitimate concern that what we got now is not working. And that there is an inherent bias built into the command direct commander control process. Mm-hmm. And the the people with the decision authority convening authorities are not lawyers, they're not prosecutors, uh, they're not the best people making these decisions. So for me, the ideal is a process where you would have a criminal discipline court for service members that's controlled by the commanders to deal with discipline issues and then a criminal justice system for crimes such as and i know it's all crimes but i thought about common crimes so mm-hmm. crimes that are crimes both in the civilian world and the military world rape murder hard robbery would be handled by uh jags uh in a system that mirrors the federal justice uh criminal justice system mm-hmm. and then a Below that, a criminal discipline system, military discipline system. I haven't heard that. And I actually, that sounds really awesome. It actually really does. Because a lot of people don't realize the discipline is different. There's a lot of discipline issues, right? Like showing up to work late or, you know, lack of customs and courtesy, not wearing your uniform right, all this other stuff. But the, the crimes, yeah. Where people are like, you got kicked out of the military for showing up to work late. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Five times. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, people do get kicked out of the military for yeah. that. No, I think I think that's excellent. And I had never really considered it. I, I knew there was in my head. I was like, from what I hear, you know, because when you're kind of in the system, you're just kind of like, OK, I'll just do whatever the system wants. Right. <laughs> but I, I, I always understood that, that it was just two extremes. Right. The way we've always done it. And then the way that the civilians think we should do it. And that was like, there has to be a happy medium where you don't just remove everything out of the military realm, right? Because we do understand our people better than I think civilians do, which I think is so fascinating because when I talk about my military murder stories and general court marshals and and all this other stuff, people are like, their their minds are blown. They're like, wait a minute, what? That back in the day, the general uh, court martial convening authority could basically just dismiss a case or could reduce a case. And I was like, yes. And I know, you know, you know, the most about that. that. Well, you know, and there there is definitely so you, you can take certain crimes and say a commander of the evidence supports is sufficient, you know, because you still have to have sufficient evidence to be right. ethically right in prosecuting. But if the evidence is sufficient to charge somebody, there are certain offenses within the military that a command would have an interest in prosecuting that a civilian prosecutor never would, right? Mm-hmm. right. It, it, you know, and then you have unique military offenses, like, uh, and like you said, desertion or AWOL, whatever, where you would say, okay, commander would have an issue, reason why he would prosecute this one that maybe a prosecutor would but when right. it comes to offenses like murder, rape, child sex, child pornography, there is no command equation that says, well, if the evidence is weak, I'm still going to prosecute it because I'm a commander and I want to send a message. Okay, if the evidence is insufficient, ethically, it shouldn't be prosecuted. Correct. Or the flip side, well, even though the evidence is there to prove this guy is guilty, I'm not going to prosecute a murder or a rape because of a command concern. Okay, there is no command concern that justifies letting a rapist go. And right. so for those kind of offenses, there really isn't a unique command position that would that should determine whether a case goes to trial or not. But for something like a barracks theft, that's one Lindsey Graham always likes to use. <laughs> uh, if you've had a problem with barracks thieves and uh, you think Article 15s aren't doing it, okay. I can see why a commander would want to prosecute that very steep. But again, I just don't see what equation involving command input changes the decision whether or not you charge somebody with murder. Yeah, no, I know. And then so uh, we don't have this anymore in most felony cases, but the the good airman or the good soldier defense. And uh, that just, uh, that drove me crazy. It still drives me crazy where commanders are kind of like, 
well, I don't know. I think maybe the the victim is lying because, you know, it's usually the, the dad cases, like the dad took yes. the phone away. Oh, those are like the worst. Oh, yeah. like, oh he's, he's like, he's like the first sergeant of the year for the last 10 years. Yeah. It's like, okay, so? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, uh, so, so tell us a little bit more about that and, um, and, and what, and what made it go away. Well, good military character defense. So character evidence is uh, admissible under certain circumstances uh, in a criminal trial, whether it's in the civilian world or in the military. The military had a particularly unique character defense of good military character. And what that was is if a uh, accused can accused of any crime, uh, didn't matter what whether it was a military nature or not, could bring on witnesses or even just put his performance reports into evidence. And that would raise the defense of good military character. And then the judge, by law, had to instruct the court members uh, that you've heard evidence of the accused good military character. And on that basis alone, you can find reasonable doubt. Problem with that is, <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. The problem with that is, of course, uh, you know, sex offense, a lot of offenses. In the civilian world, military world, you know, the meeting goes talks to the neighbors. Oh, he was a good guy. You know, okay, well, mm-hmm, look, mm-hmm. he's a good guy. The fence is ridiculous. You know, I, I don't know if I ever prosecuted a sex offender that had a bad military record. You know, they, they always have a good military record. 90% of us, 99% of us yeah. in the military have a good military record. So it's kind of meaningless. But People would latch on to it as an excuse not to prosecute or to latch on as an mm-hmm. excuse not to convict. Why did it go away? Uh, I'll take credit for that. I, I, had a convers- <laughs> I had a conversation with Senator McCaskill when I was still in active duty after the Wilkerson case. And we were just talking. They said, well, you're a prosecutor. You'll find this interesting. We have this defense called the good military character defense. And she said, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> and I explained it to her and she said, oh, we got to get rid of that. And uh, so that was part of the 2013 legislation dealing with uh, military justice was getting rid of the good military character defense. Not completely, but for most crimes, it's still there mm-hmm. for military unique offenses. And I can see uh, it's, it's, uh, why it would be relevant in the military unique offense. You know, I'm a good soldier. I wouldn't desert or I'm a good soldier. I wouldn't, uh, you know, be a coward or whatever. I get that. But for it's not there for rape. It's not there for a lot of offenses, uh, but it's still there for some offenses that don't make sense. Like kidnapping is yeah. I think yeah. people can't see my face, but I just made a like yeah. a shocked face, like a what? <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's not completely gone, uh, but it it is close to being gone. So, uh, and then she also, uh, Senator McCaskill also got it in there that there was uh, language in the UCMJ and the courtsman and the man of courts martial that said that. Uh, when deciding whether or not to prosecute someone, the commander should consider the military character of, of the accused. And that's been struck, struck, stricken from the, stricken. from the, uh, from the manual. It no longer says that. Oh, that's awesome. That's good. Yeah. Because I, that's why I brought it up because I, I feel like commanders still kind of rely on that with the whole making a decision, whether they should charge or not. They not only take the facts of the case and then everything else, but they take the person's character and, yeah. Oh, but they're the, they're my best person. Mm-hmm. I don't think they would ever do this. Or the other yeah. person, you know, maybe is lying or whatever. This yeah. guy would never lie. It's like, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's why I brought it up because <laughs> because it, it it actually just came to me as I was I was thinking about. It. I was like, yeah, it sounds like a lot like the good character defense, which we don't have anymore. But I feel like commanders still use it. Yeah. Sometimes they do. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, even though it's it's prohibited now from doing mm-hmm. that. Uh, from time to time, you see a case where the command actually admits, well, you know, he's had great military character and that was part of the reason we didn't prosecute. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> You're like, well, you know, okay, whatever. <laughs> 
So, so tell us a little, tell us more about, you know, what you have going on at pod right now, or, you know, whatever you have coming up that you would like my listeners to know. Yeah. Well, uh, so like I said, we deal a lot of legislation. This is legislation time of the year for the mm-hmm. most military justice legislation comes through the National Defense Authorization Act, which is a huge legislation, deals a lot of issues, including all the budgeting and programs. And so for the Senate Armed Services Committee, House Armed Services Committee, they start pretty early, even though it usually doesn't get through the process completely until December. Mm-hmm. And so uh, beyond the overarching issue of who should be making prosecution decisions. You know, we've been pushing a number of other issues. One of them is changing the way we do our court members, our juries. Uh, Mm -hmm. The military justice system is the only justice system in the country where verdicts aren't unanimous. Uh, there's not even yes. a consensus. And so uh, we have been pushing unanimous verdict both guilty or not guilty, uh, with the possibility of hung juries, as we do have in the civilian world. That would be consistent with the Ramos decision that came out for the Supreme Court, talking about the fact it's constitutionally required in the civilian system that all verdicts be unanimous and 12 members. And so that's something we're pushing. Uh, I know the DOD will push back on that. Uh, I don't know why, but they will. Uh, the uh, other thing is uh, discovery rights for victims. Uh, so mm-hmm. it, it can be really hit or miss for victims of what access to information they have. And, and that's a real problem. You know, we have a special victims council program and civilians like myself can do that as well. And it's hard to advise a client whether they should be pushing the case to go forward or not if you don't have a copy of the victim's statement that they made to the investigators, if you don't know what the accused said, you don't know what the results of any forensic examinations are. So trying to you know, make it as the defense has discovery rights, that a victim has discovery rights to those limited areas that they should have, you know, the right. You did a sane exam on me. I want to know what the results of that. You you seized my phone. I want to know what the results of that are. You know, you've looked at uh, any other DNA that you might have found in the, on my clothing. I want to know what the results of those are. As their attorney, I want to know what they've told the uh, investigators. So please show me the statement they provided, which now are supposed to be recorded. So let me see how that went. And, you know, then I can give, you know, educated advice to the victim, whether or not this case should go forward trial, whether they should be pushing it. So it's an ethical thing too, right? Because you need to be able to advise your client. And if you, if you don't know your client is lying, you're just willy nilly letting them say whatever. And you're like, no, I need to know what the person said before and what they're saying now. So I can know whether I need to advise them like, hey. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yep. Those are a couple of the big things we're looking at. Then, And then uh, another one that uh, we're working on is sort of like what they're doing with the I am Vanessa Gein bill dealing with the Ferris Doctrine, but there's a standalone legislation out there to really pull back on the Ferris Doctrine when it comes to mm-hmm. sexual assault and harassment. That sounds awesome, and and the Ferris doctor. I've actually I've actually considered uh, covering the case on on the podcast, like literally as a standalone case. I have to go back and there's just so many other Ferris doctor cases um, that there are, but uh, that's one that's kind of terrifying. Yeah. Um, when you think not discussing the sexual assault or sexual harassment part, but as a C, I'm a C-section mom, where I have to go into like a military hospital and get a C-section, and there was this one case in at Fort Carson where. She ended up going in to deliver her baby with a C-section and she lost her legs Yeah, yeah. because of a, a malpractice and she wasn't able to sue. And I, I am just still like, I mean, I'm still talking about it clearly. It's like four years after I yeah. had my first kid, but it's terrifying to think that someone could commit such, such ridiculous malpractice and that you can't do anything. You're just kind of like, okay, here's your baby and we'll keep your legs and bye. Like I yeah. can't. Yeah, it is. And and a couple of years ago, there was some legislation to, to claw back a little on Ferris Doctrine of medical malpractice. Didn't go far enough. Damages are still considered or the determined by the DOD. They're the ones that mm-hmm. say it and you can't appeal it. 
So, and from my understanding, they haven't paid out a dime yet. And it's been two years since this mm-hmm. has been put into place. And so not working, uh, really need the, the, the ability to go into court is what's the key to pushing the military to do something. And that's not there. And it's absolutely ridiculous when it comes to medical malpractice to, you know, and they're, and the DOD fights back and they say, oh, no, we can't have this, you know, don't let them sue us because we have such a generous benefit package. Well, you know, the generous <laughs> benefit package is if you lost your legs, the VA is going to give you disability. That's right. not the equivalent of a generous benefit package. Right, right. No, I that those those cases like literally to this day they terrify me. I'm just yeah. oh, it drives me insane. But I'm glad that you guys are working on that. And I, you know, that's yeah, that sounds really, really promising. And hopefully, I know you guys have been at it for seven years, eight years, ten years now. Um, so hopefully one day we'll see we'll see the fruits of that. Which every year I feel like they give a little bit, right? That you get a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we get a little every year. <laughs> like a chipping. Yeah, it's a little every year. And, and you know what one of the big ones for me in scene reform uh our sensing system is it's it has all the rules of a knife fight as some people say and uh wildly disparate sentences similarly situated people uh you know you can have people who did the exact same crime co-conspirators one gets a month one goes to jail for 10 years and the appellate mm-hmm. courts will be like eh, you know uh, yeah, that, they're different. It's like yeah, the same case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, well, the one guy's hair is red and the other guy's hair is <laughs> brown. So, you know, this, the, yeah, they weren't identical. So, and and then, uh, you know, the Devin Kelly case, the guy went into mm-hmm. Texas and slaughtered 26 people. You know, that should be the, you know, the exhibit A, why we need sentencing reform, because this guy was clearly a nut and clearly dangerous. But, you know, under our sentencing system, there's no ability to give a mental health evaluation. Sentencing authority has no clue what his true dangerousness is, future dangerousness was. No mm-hmm. ability to order him to get mental health treatment or, you know, put all the other conditions on a supervised release that you have in the federal system. And so we just tell court members, well, here's the range of punishment, do something. and you know, right. so is it any surprise we don't get good sentences? And so we get people who have done something relatively minor get this severe sentence. You get people who do something really serious. I mean, there are cases where people get convicted of rape and don't serve a single day of jail. Mm-hmm. You know? And so it's just all over the place. Yeah. And my listeners are probably like, wait, what did Devin Kelly do? We're, we actually talked about you and I about talking about that case in the future. So for all my listeners who are like, oh, we want to know about that one. We'll, don't worry, we'll, we're, we'll get there. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's definitely a, a, another, I feel like just, they're just all crazy. They just get crazier and crazier as the weeks go by. But all right. So where can my listeners find you and where can they go to learn more about pod? Protectordefenders.com. Uh, website's got all the information you need. It's got a list of the legislative accomplishments we've had, our priorities. Uh, got a list of amicus briefs we filed, uh, stories from survivors about the experiences they've had, how to get help if you're a survivor and want to get help. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's uh, a lot of good stuff. And it also throws out all the stories that we get a lot of media coverage. You, know, you can find the stories of that uh, our mission and our message appears in and stories of survivors who have gone through a process that hasn't delivered justice for them. Right. Awesome. Well, Don, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for taking time out of your busy day to chat with, I'm sure, you know, we call it the true crime army or the true crime warriors. And uh, I know that you and I, as we just discussed just a couple seconds ago, we have talked about some other cases some other big military murder cases that have occurred in the past. And so I have a feeling you'll be coming back on the show to chat with us about those. So again, thank you so much. Thank you, Margo. Well, True Crime Warriors, I hope you learned a few things from my conversation with Don Christensen from Protect Our Defenders. It is clear that Vanessa's case, her legacy really, isn't going anywhere. Hopefully, her death has not been in vain. 
Just as a side note, after my conversation with Don, it was announced that the I Am Vanessa Guillen bill will be reintroduced this Thursday on the one year anniversary of Vanessa's murder. There will also be candlelight vigils held all around the country on the same date. Regardless of what happens with the I Am Vanessa Guillen bill though, I know one thing is for sure, the mighty strength of Vanessa's family and her very own warriors, Vanessa's warriors, those who gave her a voice when she no longer had one, well, Vanessa's warriors have helped to unearth a lot of failures in the military justice system. But hopefully, now that we know our failures and see our weaknesses, we can now work on healing and ridding the ranks of toxic leadership, a culture of mediocrity, and we can work together to make our military safe for everyone in our ranks. Thank you so much for listening today. And if you are new here, I hope you'll stick around for more military murder stories. Make sure you follow me on social media on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and join the Facebook community at facebook.com slash groups slash military true crime. If you like what you heard today and you want ad free content and bonus content, join the Patreon fan club by visiting patreon.com slash military true crime. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. This month's executive producers are Falcon 13, Nicole, and Alicia. This week's newest assistant producers are Rain, not a bow, and Yesenia A. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Podcast.